The company was liquidated in 2007. As far as most of the world was concerned, that ended the Yukos affair. The company assets, at least those inside Russia, which was most of them, were sold to Rosneft and Gazprom, the two giant oil and gas companies controlled by the Russian government. Bruce Missimore, one of the American executives at the center of the Yukos affair, contends that was the government's plan for years. They made a deal with Rosneft in December of 2004 to push Yukos into bankruptcy. It took three years for that to happen, as the government piled on billions upon billions of tax claims. By then, Bruce Missimore had moved back to Houston and had officially retired. But he couldn't turn his back on Yukos. His friend and former boss, Mikhail Hartakovsky, was sitting in a Siberian prison, and thousands of Yukos workers and shareholders had paid a heavy price for what Missimore contends was the theft of one of the world's largest oil companies. He was still outraged at what Vladimir Putin had done, both to his friend and to his company, and he wasn't about to stop fighting. I'm Lauren Steffi. Welcome to Episode 5 of Putin's Oil Heist, an inside account of the Yukos Affair. Today's episode, Fighting from Afar. If you've been following our story, you know that Bruce Missimore was the American finance executive hired by Hartikovsky as part of his efforts to modernize Yukos, one of Russia's biggest oil companies, and prepare it to compete internationally. At the time, Hartikovsky was the richest man in Russia, and Putin became suspicious of his political ambitions. Hartikovsky was arrested in 2007 and would eventually serve 10 years in prison. While he was there, Missimore, his chief financial officer, led the fight to recover Yukos' assets outside of Russia and return the value to the company's shareholders. The cases were numerous, and they spanned the globe. A lot of the countries in, in Europe, for instance, I can think of Spain, Switzerland, Netherlands, England, Sweden, of course, Russia, a lot of the cases, the U.S., Bahamas, Canada. That includes some of the shareholder suits, too, that individual shareholders brought as well. There's probably more Singapore, for sure. Several of them are significant and still pending. Yukos had several subsidiaries in the Netherlands, and the largest group of shareholders brought an international arbitration proceeding there in 2014 to recover pilfered assets. In the uh, international arbitration, the largest case in history, $50 billion. And that's now, with interest and everything, up to about 70, as I understand it. The case has ping-ponged around the Dutch legal system for years. When it was filed, an arbitration tribunal ruled that the Russian government had violated international obligations by deliberately causing the bankruptcy of Yukos. A district court in The Hague set the judgment aside, but it was reinstated on appeal. Eventually, Russia was ordered to pay the $50 billion, but it appealed that decision to the Dutch Supreme Court. The High Court canceled the arbitration award in late 2021, but kicked the case back to a lower court, all of which means it's likely to drag on for years to come. And that's the Russian tactic is they lose a case and they appeal, appeal, appeal to the very final possible minute to simply delay the cases, because every single case that has been ruled against the Russians basically says Putin is a thief. 
A few episodes ago, we mentioned that in 2004, Miss Amore and other Yukos executives filed a case against the Kremlin with the European Court of Human Rights. Miss Amore led the effort to file that case because he'd become convinced that Yukos couldn't find justice in Russia. What happened when we were denied any ability to contest the taxes, and then they froze the assets. And so I called one of our lawyers in at Yukos, an international lawyer, and I said, what can we do about this? We've got to protect our rights. We can't protect our rights in Russia. So how do we protect them? And he came up with the European Court of Human Rights. We hired a European Court of Human Rights specialist attorney in London and filed a case in April of 2004. I had to really work to convince my peers to do that because they were afraid we were going to irritate the Russian government. Does that sound familiar? Anyhow, we did it anyway, and I got the uh, agreement of the management committee of Yukos, and I and the attorney filed the case against Russia. The European court agreed to hear the case in 2010, and four years later ruled in Yukos's favor, saying that the seizure of Yukos by the Russian government, quote, threatens the very integrity and legitimacy of the European Convention on Human Rights. That's a reference to the document that dates to 1950, in which members of the Council of Europe agreed to adhere to a set of standards that uphold human rights and fundamental freedoms. Russia joined the Council in 1996. The 46 other member nations voted to expel it after the Ukraine invasion in February 2022. The European Court of Human Rights is the body set up by the Council to enforce compliance with the Council's protections. In issuing its decision, the ECHR ordered the Russian government to pay $2.6 billion in damages related to the Yuko seizure. It was the largest judgment in the court's history. That led to a whole new round of disputes. The Russian Duma passed a law that any case that is deemed unfair to Russia, they can't honor, Well, which is what they did with the European Court of Human Rights. And the Council of Europe, which just booted Russia, has said, no, sorry, we don't recognize the Duma's legislation that you can't pay this because you stole the company. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Putin's Oil Heist. In addition, Russia's constitutional court ruled that the ECHR's ruling violated the Russian constitution. The Yukos case was just one of hundreds brought against Russia in the ECHR. In 2015, for example, Russia faced 109 judgments from the ECHR for human rights violations, more than any other council member. In the Yukos case, Russia argued that paying shareholders from Russian state coffers was unfair and that the money should come from Yukos's international assets. That's because Misamore and other Yukos executives had frustrated Russian authorities for years by keeping Yukos's assets out of the Kremlin's hands. In 2005, we had come up with another scheme to protect all of Yukos's international assets, and that was to form two Dutch foundations called Stichtings in Holland. And we had moved all of Yukos's international assets into those two stichtings, one which was assets based in Cyprus and another that were assets based in the Netherlands. Miss Amore was a director of both stichtings. 
The Russians were outraged that he had managed to move Yukos' assets beyond the government's reach. In fact, the transfer of the assets to the Stichtings may have been another motivation behind the burglary of Miss Moore's Houston home, which we discussed in Episode 4. The break-in occurred about a year after the Stichtings were set up. The Russians were still very interested in understanding, and that was all on my laptop computer, how we had formed these Dutch foundations, why we'd founded them, and moved the international assets into them. And, and in fact, you know, I'm still today under criminal investigation in Russia for the theft of $10 billion worth of Yukos assets, which is what the Russians contend was the value of assets we moved into the two stickings at the instructions of the Yukos board of directors and so forth. So it was all totally legit. But I'm still under criminal investigation in Russia for doing that. The Stichtings were involved in two other legal battles. The foundations have two remaining principal cases. We won one of them. One was a Yukos Capital, which was a Dutch subsidiary of Yukos, which had made loans to the parent company, which the Russians illegally ignored in the bankruptcy. And so we sued and we won that case last summer. In 2019, I testified in London in that case. There's one more case, which was a a subsidiary of Yukos that owned our treasury shares. And of course, they got no money for the shares when it was expropriated. And so they won in the first round of an international arbitration. That arbitration was based in Toronto. And so it's been appealed to the Canadian court systems, and that's where it's still stuck. Then that was a jurisdiction ruling that we won. And now if we get through that and the Canadian court rules for us, then you go on to the merits hearing, and I might have to testify again in that. Fifteen years after Putin's oil heist, the litigation drags on. Though Miss Amore officially retired in 2005, he remained on the board of the Stichtings until 2015. Since then, the Yukos affair has wound down, and the Canadian case could be the final one, at least for him. And I might have to testify again in that, but that's probably the last thing I'll do on the Yukos front, is testify in that hearing. And then there's Mikhail Hartikovsky, the former oligarch and Yukos CEO who brought Miss Moore to Russia in the first place. Hartikovsky served 10 years in prison, where he frequently wrote from jail advocating for democratic reforms in Russia and criticizing Vladimir Putin's government. The timing of Hartikovsky's release, Miss Moore believes, was not a coincidence. Ten years, they let him out right before the Sochi Olympics in 2013. Putin anticipated that he was going to have some problems at the Sochi Olympics with demonstrations because Mikhail was at that time the highest profile political prisoner in the world. But also, Mikhail had appealed to Putin to let him out because his mother was dying of cancer in Germany. She'd gone to Germany from Russia to a a sanatorium there and was having cancer treatments. And so, you know, he appealed to Putin. And so Putin had made it look like Putin was being humane and let Mikhail out of prison, but he was trying to avoid some things at Sochi too. Since his release in 2013, Hartikovsky, who now lives in London, has carried on his reform efforts. So Mikhail has been out since 2013. He then basically been involved since in efforts to promote democracy in Russia, re-promote democracy in Russia. And of course, recently he's been very high profile because of the Ukraine invasion. And Mikhail was there during the Orange Revolution. 
helping the Ukrainians with their freedom. So now he's become considerably higher profile and he's running actually Ukrainian relief organizations along with his son. His son lives in New York. They're trying to help out the Ukrainians with all the humanitarian assistance they can muster. In most of the legal cases, the Yuko shareholders have been victorious, but collecting the judgments from the Russian government has proven elusive. Meanwhile, Miss Amore has retired to a home in northern Arizona, and while he's enjoying his retirement, he sometimes wonders what it all means. What are the lessons of the Yukos affair, and what implications do they have for the current situation in Russia and Ukraine? We'll put it all in perspective in our final episode of Putin's Oil Heist. I mean, I think we accomplished an immense amount in the short period of time that I was in Russia. And that all just got tossed out the window, of course, by Putin. I'm Lauren Steffi. Join us next time for Episode 6, From Yukos to Ukraine.